five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Art of Move podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. We're still here in the Canadian Rockies trying to find the grand unified theory of human movement biomechanics, but more recently shifting the discussion to a broader scale of what it means to be a human being living a conscious experience on earth. Uh, as we talk about movement, we can't help but get into ideas like intent, like consciousness, like who is the driver of the vehicle of the body as we're exploring these different biomechanical concepts. And naturally that shifts into some very philosophical and uh, even abstract spiritual ideas. And so we're just kind of allowing, uh, you know, where, wherever inspiration wants to take us, we're allowing it to take us there in our conversation. So we're kind of shifting away from just general biomechanics and movement, and we're getting more into these ideas of like consciousness, the self, um, it, even, even in terms of how we relate to one another as human beings, we're, we're talking more about the human experience as a whole. Uh, in terms of how you're feeling the conversation shift, is there anything you'd add to that or things that you feel uh, no, like? I just, uh, I just don't want to be limited in how how we talk right like i think we naturally always shift to more abstract ideas anyway so may as well just go with the flow and uh talk about movement when it comes up totally and speaking of like as things come up and naturally arise today i wanted to talk about this idea of authenticity and what it means to uh, authentically express oneself and to be authentic and the reason that I've been thinking about this a lot is since our last conversation about intent and about the origins of consciousness, the origins of mind, it kind of makes you wonder which aspect of the mind or which aspect of consciousness or which aspect of your intent or your ego structure, which one of those is you, how, you know, what constitutes the, um, the makeup of a, a person's individuality. And then is the individual a fixed personality? Is the individual a fixed set of characteristics, values, behaviors, uh, and that authenticity is congruence with those fixed core identities? Or is the human being, is the personality, is the self something that's far more fluid and spontaneous and that perhaps spontaneity is more, or sorry, uh, perhaps authenticity is more in that realm of spontaneity rather than having a lot of uh, premeditated behaviors oriented to supplicating to social conditioning or trying to secure, uh, you know, a position in a social hierarchy or what, whatever have you. It's just more a, a, a comfort and an ease within one's expression of being. And, uh, and in that sense, you can sp- spontaneously arise in every moment. You're very present. You're not necessarily trying to uh, kind of, your mind doesn't get in the, the way proverbially. So those are some ideas that I was kind of thinking of right off the get-go Let's let's start with a basic definition. What do you think authenticity means? Um, I, I'm not sure, to be honest. Let's explore it because I think it's fluid. I think you spend your whole life trying to figure out who you are, right? Um, I think we're kind of given a narrative as even as kids, it's like you should know who you are or mm. um, this is who you are or just be yourself. To tell that to a kid is just so dumb to me. You know what I mean? It's (laughs) so ridiculous. You don't know who you are your whole life. I Mm. think that philosophers like Carl Jung have talked about trying to find it. And society is now saying in general, yeah, you you know this as a child. Yeah, you're good. Uh, No. (laughs) It's something that you keep finding out your whole life. It's something I've observed people struggle with over and over and over and over again. It's dynamic. It's fluid. You're trying to figure it out till you die, I think. 
yeah, it's, and it's fascinating. And, but you know, like we are trying to figure out who we are and we are trying to define ourselves through a variety of means, through our relationships, through our perceived roles, through our narratives about who we are and our beliefs about the way the world works. And we define, we, you know, we create boundaries around an idea, an idea of who we are, an idea of, of what we represent. And this notion of like, we're constantly searching, we're constantly trying to relate by the same token, I feel like everyone has an intuitive sense that there is a self, you know, that there is a continuous self, like, just to bring it down to like a really basic level. If you have you ever been out drinking with someone and that person does something really, really fucking stupid, like they're blackout drunk, they do something incredibly dumb. And then the next day, when you tell them about what it is that they did and how they made a fool of themselves, man, I really wasn't myself. I was really wasted right? And this idea is like, I wasn't myself, you know, there are physiological changes to my, my being that inhibited me from uh, acting in integrity with who I believe myself to be, who I believe my, you know, what I believe my character to constitute of. And so there's this intuitive sense of like, well, there is a self and there is like a consistent principle within me that I experience and that I identify. Um, whether or not a person has that completely and totally figured out and they're strong in their principles, etc. That's a different story. Yeah, no, I've experienced that hundreds of times, been on the uh, opposite end of that one uh, many, many times, right? And uh, I don't think that that is quite it. Only because, I mean, you're lo losing your inhibitions when you're drunk, right? When you're drinking mm. and, you know, when you're on narcotics and whatever, you can lose your inhibitions without drugs, right? So I think that, again, it's something that we're struggling for our whole lives. I think the word you use, narrative is a big mm. one. We tell ourselves narratives over and over. We're told narratives as a kid. You are this, you are that. For me, it was like uh, being an athlete as a kid. You are this, you are an athlete, right? And like, mm. when I stopped playing sports, I'm like, who am I? You know, like <laughs> it was it was more like that, right? So you had to figure that out at that point. It was almost like an ego death at that point in time when I was mm. younger, right? Um, around 19, I just quit everything and went to school and, you know, became the party guy. So it's like, um, I had that identity as well. And then I was called extreme by two different groups of friends, right? Mm. Completely didn't know each other because I was just doing extreme things. I don't know if like, I'm kind of programmed that way. I think I am a little bit, but mm. maybe from sports, I, I don't know, but it was, I had that identity now. Right. And then now it's like, I'm a more calm person than I was in the past. I don't drink at all. Like ever. Um, so now I have a new identity, I guess, right? Like, I think I'm losing that as I age or the will to care about that mm. as I age, but it always sneaks in the back door. So I think narrative is a massive, massive proper way to say it. We are constantly telling ourselves narratives, giving ourselves frames of reference of who we are and bouncing ideas off others of who we are. And so those think? narratives, those narratives tie together and form a cohesive structure of your experience of the self, right? And oftentimes I feel like when people say me, they're talking about the, the perception that there's someone looking behind their eyes out into the world. And then this, you know, the, the, within the boundaries of your body and your actions and your mind and stuff, like you said, you're, you're creating narratives and stories about how this being that's looking out, you know, from behind your eyes is interacting with and relating to the world. Um, you know, what's, 
I was having a conversation with someone recently about the idea of travel revealing deeper levels of character. Um, a lot of the times our identity is contingent on the comforts and familiarity of our environment and daily routines. And so if you uh, wake up every day and you eat the same breakfast and you go to the same job, taking the same route to work, the same blah, 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 you can predict the future because you repeat the same routine. Your day could be copy pasted. It's the exact same thing. Your roles are very predefined. The, you know, social contracts that you have are very predictable. There's no, you know, there's no reason to like express any form of abstract creativity because you're just within the confines of this very clearly defined existence. Does that make sense? That completely makes sense. Yeah. yeah I think now I think creature comforts and repetitiveness give you a frame to work off of a narrative. It's like, I do this every day. This is me and I'm good. Right. So I think that limits growth, but could be at a time in your life, appropriate right so I, I don't know i think we're figuring this out on the fly here right now right? absolutely now yeah. imagine taking that same person who has that clear def definition of who they are based on their routines and familiar environment familiar relationships take them to a country where they don't speak the language and the culture is completely different what happens to them what happens to their idea oh. of who they are what happens to you know like their expression of stress tolerance? How do they problem solve in those scenarios? How do they relate to other people? How are they like, who are they once they're put in a situation, an unfamiliar situation that demands attentiveness and conscious decision? Yeah, I think most people it's sink or swim for most people, right? Like that's where maybe characters built. I don't, I don't know the right way to put it, but it, it puts you in an unfamiliar situation and you have to possibly break down the narratives that you have of yourself if it's a crazy enough situation or a situation that's different enough from what you do on your daily routine. I think that's mm. why I, I hardly hear every, anyone ever say, I regret traveling, you know? <laughs> I, I really regretted that time I traveled. Almost everybody who's traveled, that's why the term exists. They're well-traveled. It's like mm. this person has seen a lot of different scenarios in their life I don't know if that's more of an ego thing. I think it possibly ties into ego. Well, e ego, ego you could almost imagine is just like the, the defined boundaries of one's sense of personality. And the more involved and obsessed one becomes with that particular image or narrative or idea about oneself, right? The ego is a personality, which is the idea of who one is. When mm -hmm. a person is obsessed with and identified with that, that's when a person is negatively egotistical or self-absorbed is because they have these ideas about who they are and their image and their, their it's, you know, it's like a narcissistic trait, but that's, um, that's how I define ego. Ego isn't a bad thing, but a person can become obsessed with their own ego and that's when they become egotistical. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that definition. Definitely. And I think again, going back to narratives and mm. the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and, uh, that is ties directly into ego. And, um, I think, um, what's his name? Steph from Uber Boyo is is like a brilliant one to have on on for this type of thing right because he can get in he can get in deep but uh i like to talk about carl jung on this one because mm. that's kind of actually funny story that's how i got to know steph from uber boyo if you don't know uber boyo go check his youtube channel it's absolutely incredible yeah and we've we've interviewed him twice as well so check out our interviews with him because they were yeah yeah especially the first one was so good right mm. so anyway uh i was first reading carl jung came upon his work 
basically Carl Jung in his last book is like, what he said in his last book was his warning to humanity. And he's like, look, as you age and as the world, you know, gets older, as you move into the 2000s, because he, he wrote this in like 1950, he somehow knew that the world was be going to become more centralized. Ideas would become more centralized. And that's obviously what's happening. We hear our narratives from social media. The boomers will hear it from, you know, mainstream media. Um, but either way, we're getting centralized news. We have, there's a reason most people can walk down the street and you believe the same thing as the person down the street. Maybe not you, but like most people can have the mm. same narrative about something, right? Because they hear it from a screen. They're like programmed, right? Whether you think that's good or bad, it doesn't matter. It's what's happened, right? So um, most people have their ideas centralized. And even if you don't, you know what the narrative is. You know what to say and what not to say, right? So um, it's it's very interesting. It's going to basically what Carl Jung said, it's going to be harder and harder to keep your individualism. Mm. And to me, the first half of life should be building up your individualism. That's not what's promoted now at all, but that's what he said. And that's what I believe as well. And the second half of your life is giving back to the collective. So yeah. I think we have that reversed. And even the individual thing is not really even uh, promoted. It's promoted in a way of selfishness, but not in the way of yeah. building yourself up to give back to the whole. Well, this is, this is really interesting. I think that the form of individualism that is currently promoted now is ego and image-based individualism. It's not yes. the actual individual that is being uh, encouraged to develop oneself. It's not like we're fucking reading Plato and studying history and actually like challenging ourselves to think more critically and innovate things that are going to solve problems in society. It's not like we're learning to relate to one another in a more profound way that's uplifting each other and bringing out each other's genius, we are encouraged to look good <laughs> and, and put on a good enough show to be, you know, to earn enough social capital to have some sort of sway in the social hierarchy that we have established nowadays. So that's, that's my perception. That's what social media is to me. I play that game. You know, obviously you, you know, I to. play that. You, yeah. We, we, we're, we're in the game. We're not just being yeah. like, Oh, these, foolish people who are just caught up in this game. Like we're not, <laughs> we're in the game. Uh, you're listening to us. You probably found us on social media. You're listening to us on YouTube. It's because we're playing the game. We want your attention. We want you. We our our ulterior motive in having some of these conversations broadcast to an audience is, uh, is not necessarily for self exaltation. I think you and I both believe really strongly in the virtues of improving your critical thinking, thinking for oneself, expanding one's mind and just educating yourself into deeper, broader perspectives that approach and approximate truth. Um, but in order for us to promote that, in order for us to succeed in some of that mission of spreading that energy, there has to be a certain level of self-promotion. And in order for there to be self-promotion, there has to be a sense of self. Like the my personality, I was thinking about this because I do so much social media content and I produce a lot of media. Like a lot of my personality is, uh, you know, it's like 70% just like an image for, for social media, you know, like I am very much like authentically creative, like the stuff that I'm making, I'm not necessarily just thinking about, uh, like how can I show up on social media so that people will like me? I still need a certain level of feeling and integrity with who I am as a person, what my values are. So I'm not willing to abandon values, but I will 
say that like, if no one was watching my videos, I wouldn't spend 30 hours editing a video about a trip I took or, you know, making reels or doing any of this stuff. Like if, if there wasn't some sort of uh, payback for it, I wouldn't, you know, that's not who I would be. I'd be do doing other things all the time. Well, it's very interesting because uh, I didn't do social media for the longest time. Like I had a Facebook, I still, I think my Facebook photo right now is still from like 25 years ago, right? Yeah. I just didn't care to do it. Didn't care to do it for my business. Uh, got on it here reluctantly because we were doing the podcast. So I'm like, all right, I'll get an Instagram, right? Kind of didn't even do that for the longest time up until a couple months ago, you know? And then I started posting every day and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to learn about the algorithm here, right? Because I thought that people, if I put out my authentic self and, you know, show movement and show things like that, people would just find me. Mm. But no, that does not how it works at all. You have to go with what the algorithm, literally a computer system wants, or you just don't get seen. You don't get put in front of eyes. Nobody cares. You know what I mean? Mm. So you have to appeal to the mainstream, which makes you be more centralized in your thought. And you have to do it within the bounds of not getting canceled because let's be realistic. Okay. Um, most people have thoughts that are outside the bounds of cancellation, okay? <laughs> Unless you're a really, really good boy or, or girl, right? <laughs> or them, okay? So if, when you have those thoughts that are outside the bounds of cancellation, you can't say it. And so that's fine. Just keep – zip it up. And also people around you will be like, hey, stop saying that, right? I'm not saying – it doesn't even necessarily have to be bad. But it, it's getting – the box is getting – tighter and tighter on what to say. Now the algorithm keeps you in focus anyway, because you have to so, get out in front of eyes in order to get seen. So this is interesting. This is kind of like in terms of the bell curve of authenticity. I think there's a, there's like a, a point at which, you know, Oh, I'm just sharing my authentic self. People will find me. I mean, if your authentic self is very non-polarizing and very chill and very neutral, then no one will find you. But if your authentic self is is actually, you know, when you're talking about everyone has thoughts that are outside the boundaries of what would get them canceled, there's a, an element of psychology that is attracted to polarity, that's attracted to polarizing opinions. And when someone goes outside of the boundaries, you can't go too far. If you go too far in the deep end, you're, in, you're just like a crazy person standing on a soapbox screaming obscenities. And that's, oh, what's that? That's your authentic self. No one's going to, you know, connect to that. But if you get one person that is <laughs> well communicated and says all the things that other people are all thinking, but aren't saying because they're afraid it'll get them canceled, that creates attention and magnetism because there's an, you know, because they're willing to, you know, authentically express themselves where other people are too afraid to authentically express that in fear of getting canceled. And so now there's this other person who is getting a lot of attention because now he's giving other people to express this thing that people authentically feel but don't express, sort of this permission slip. It propagates the meme of that particular expression. People start to express that in their own personalities and the cycle just kind of continues and evolves. I mean, yes, you're, you're completely right. Sometimes that happens. Mm -hmm. but but like the algorithm really doesn't work like that right like I, if i had a nicer butt i would post my butt on instagram and get millions of likes you know what i mean like that that there's also that right? there is that okay and and when you look at the algorithm the mainstream stuff that is very boring really gets a lot of attention like i was i was scrolling through today um what did i see i saw um a fake back crack 
Literally, mm. the guy just added in a crack, okay? And I'm like, that's obviously fake. I'm a chiropractor. I know he's fake, right? Um, he wasn't a chiropractor, by the way. He was a massage therapist. I go, I look, he's got 2.9 million views, right? On the on the video. It's a, it's a completely fake video, right? Mm -hmm. He is willing to do that. And it looks good on social media. Where's the authenticity there? It was a complete game of the algorithm. So there's that too, right? So there's the authenticity. If you're like, let's say PewDiePie or Mr. Beast willing mm -hmm. to invest and just do it really intelligently. And by the way, PewDiePie has been canceled a couple times and like really demoted in the algorithm. And people who used to be promoted five years ago are not being promoted anymore. Yep. Then there's that as well, right? So mm -hmm. you can't just be this person who's on the edge of cancellation and expect to blow up. It doesn't work like that either, right? It's, it's so, funny, hey? Because if you get to a certain point of popularity, then all your stuff is under scrutiny. Right. Like, yes. like a, a person who has a smaller, but more polarizing view, they can use that almost as like a hook. The other thing is like, in terms of the mainstream consciousness thing, you can say fringe ideas and still present it in a mainstream consciousness kind of way. You can yeah. hook someone in with something entertaining, capture their attention. This is just like, you know, consumer psychology, capture their attention with a strong polarizing hook or an interesting, entertaining hook when they're lulled into a state of entertainment, then you just communicate the thing that you want to communicate and it's just continuous with the sense of entertainment and it kind of like locks into the person's mind it's it's more palatable as an idea because it's it's served it's almost like a you know if you put like a pill for a dog and a, a spoon of peanut butter and feed it to them it's th that's very interesting point in uh the soviet in the ussr back uh when it was you know ussr in the 70s they feared humor the most because you can disguise your political opinions within humor, which is what memes are now, right? Memes mm -hmm. are the, the way that, you know, people who would ride the edge, of course, I'm not one of those person, people, right? People who would <laughs> ride the edge are disguising it within humor. So memes will be next to be on the chopping block, but it's very, very difficult to do, right? So it's very interesting. Um, and people can get super creative with memes and like, it, it's so... The, the funny thing is, it's like a lot of people look at the world now in a little dystopian way, right? Um, you can look at it in either way, uh, dystopian or there's major hope for the future and, you know, technology is going to get people through whatever narrative you want to say to yourself. But um, uh, I, forgot, I lost my train of thought there, basically. That's okay. Well, yeah. you know, I want to talk about this idea of <laughs> how you view the world affecting how you express your personality, right? Because if you look at it as a dystopian future versus something that's full of hope and joy and potential and, you know, like the advancements of technology, bringing more opportunities for human potential to, to actualize itself. Like the way that you look at the world at large uh, will impact how you're motivated. Not only that, but like uh, you could look at the world currently as this dystopian thing and you can be a doomer about it, or you can be super motivated to try and implement a, a positive change and influence collective consciousness in a more uplifting direction. So it could be either one, like whether or not you view it as dystopian or hopeful, like 
You could also have like, wow, the world is so full of amazing possibilities and I'm still a piece of shit sitting here jerking off and not doing anything with my life. Yeah. <laughs> you could feel bad. You could feel bad about it, right? It's a great point. <laughs> it's a great point because there is tools that are so incredible that have never been there before, right? Like to be able to go on social media and make the videos I'm making right now, it's just like, it, it's pretty amazing <laughs> to me actually, right? Like I'm making them in a, less than an hour and I'm like, whoa, that actually looks pretty good. I Like that looks like, professionally edited like five years ago it would have taken a professional editor now it's mm -hmm. just like a turn on green screen uh capture a couple things and and i'm good to go right so not that my videos are that great because i still need work and still practice but what i'm saying is that there is tools to get your message out and positive messages and not look at things in a doom and gloom type of thing but there are a lot of doom and gloom scenarios for especially young men, I'd say, and, and young mm. women too, right? Like, um, but a lot of what we call black pill, right? Like, um, just n a lot less hope for the future, right? Back in the day, how it worked was, I mean, there was pair bonding, right? Like women and men came together. Men usually did the one income, right? One income for the household. And it kind of created a need to pair bond. That, that's gone. Women make more money than men on the whole, right? So that need to pair bond is gone. Um, for American, Canadian, Western society, it's sink or swim in that sense. In the Middle Eastern cultures and, and you know, uh, you know, South American, I'm, I'm half Latin, half Latino, half El Salvadorian, still a culture of family and uh, pair bonding through uh, religion and culture, okay? But... Uh, that I think is a, slowly eroding, not as much as the US and Canada, right? And, and Europe. So it's a very interesting place for young men who are just coming up right now, right? Mm. So it, yeah. So it's interesting when you're talking about this reduction in pair bonding, what came to mind was your previous point about moving away from individualism. Because in one hand, it's like we are moving away from individual individualism. We're less encouraged to think our own thoughts and make our own conclusions and do our own research. And, um, you know, more and more there's pressure to adhere to particular narratives. Right. And so it's like, unless you're subscribed to particular narratives then you're part of an out group and, you know, there's, 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 that's omnipresent in human existence, I think, but obviously you can control that and, and exacerbate that. So, so on that hand, we're becoming less individual and there's more, uh, narratives that you can easily latch onto and subscribe to and outsource your own thinking and your own being and your own sovereignty basically to just, you know, believing what someone told you. On the other hand, it's like when you're talking about less pair bonding and you, you know, people making their own money um, and like trying to establish the, the like a, a name for themselves and that, that sense is pu pushing individualism, but it's like an isolating individualism. I think there's like a collective individualism that, you know, includes this idea of community and partnership and family, but also still encourages the strength and development of the individual. And I, th you know, I like both are required in a sense, but there's healthy and unhealthy and disintegrated and integrated expressions of both. Yeah. I, I think we should define individualism. Like, the individualism that's healthy for me isn't like I'm going to be selfish and mm. just be on my own, an individual on my own, and that's it. That's not it, right? It's building yourself up. And I think I'll, I'll say this point later, but I think building yourself up with 
understanding why you think what you think. I think logical fallacies with what we said before are some of the most important things, not actual information. Information can be got on Google. That's what people think is smart now, I think, right? Like, mm. especially younger people, chat GPT will do my essay for me. Uh, Google, I can just Google the answer. If I know how to use Google, then I'm, I'm good to go, right? But it's how you think. The method of how you think is very, very important and not subscribe to it all like i didn't learn it at school like how did we not learn logical fallacies at school the first thing taught to us how to think it wasn't a thing they're like no 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 we're not going to teach logical fallacies color this book in we're not going to teach you how to do your taxes color this book in and do these math problems <laughs> it's kind of crazy man like how to think is the key i i believe and then that starts with logical fallacy i think is a shortcut and then uh, learning why we think what we think through the philosophers of the ages that brought us Western society. Because there was a collection of philosophers that came in sequence that gave us the reasons we think how we think now. Yeah. But that is all lost in translation at the moment. I'm, I'm reading a book on that right now by Will Durant, who's a historian and a philosopher. He has a book called The Story of Philosophy. And he kind of... Mm -hmm goes straight through and talks about some of the most influential philosophers and the context of their time that they lived through and their personal lives and their aspirations and, and, but mostly the influence that they had on the collective way of thinking and the collective approach to knowledge. I think, uh, understanding that and getting really into that books by, uh, like the 48 laws of power, for example, is a really, really good book. Oh yeah. Um, laws of human nature. Those are really, really good books to study and kind of, you know, understand some of your own, uh, like human beings are very self-deceptive and deceptive in general. We're ego preserving, we're self-rationalizing, we're self-justifying. Um, there's a lot of deception that human beings are capable of. And even just being aware of that is, you know, this is the, again, the idea of authenticity. It's like, <laughs> Is there uh, is there like an like an authentic ego that just expresses itself and doesn't have to justify itself? You know, maybe uh, you know authenticity is being without justification. Um, but I really liked you know uh, you know Owen Cook, RSD yes. Tyler. Uh, he it. had a really cool thing in one of his seminars where he talked about think about how many of your thoughts and your you know daily behaviors are motivated just by simple biological drives. Like I'm cold, I'm hot, I'm hungry, I'm horny, uh, you know, and, and just basically acting on that. And then how much of that is oriented around ego preservation or image? What does this person think of me? Do I look cool in this situation? Am I being accepted? Da, 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 da. And then, you know, how much of it is based on your work and navigating the politics of that? And then how much is you know, just bullshit and distraction and entertainment. And then what's left over in terms of consciousness or sovereignty or self-directed thought. Once you it, really, you know, you, you, you put an audit and, and look at like, how, like what your being is, what your day-to-day -day is and what your thoughts, behaviors, words, and actions are. That is a very good point and very hard to pivot off of because there's so many points there, but like <laughs> it, it comes to like, I, I agree. Uh, there's primal mode, right? Um, hungry, thirsty, horny, like all that stuff, right? But then there's like, what are the problems you were trying to solve in your head? What are you actually thinking in your head right now? Like, are you thinking about a celebrity? Are you thinking about a sports? Are you thinking about like, what are you actually thinking about and trying to solve in your head? 
right? So get better problems to solve in your head. And I think that's like a pretty good first step, right? Um, what are you actually thinking about? What is your consciousness? What are you actually seeing in your mind's eye? And if you audit the day or the month and you've thought about celebrities, gossip, and haven't even thought about solving an idea, then maybe you have an issue that's not going to be solved by things outside of your own mind, right? Like you have to go back and get those better problems, I think. I, I talked about this with someone recently about this idea of how different things condition our brains or our minds to prioritize seeking out that thing. It's like the, you know, the neurophysiology of addiction. We talked about the dopamine thing in terms of the materialism versus non-materialism thing. But I think of, uh, you know, when I used to play a lot of video games, I kind of noticed this thing. Like I, I was a really big fan of Skyrim, if you ever played that. Um, but it's this fantasy RPG where you're going around slaying dragons and it's this massive open world and it's super fun. And I've spent, I spent like thousands of hours of my life. Like, I mean, thousands of hours of my life playing and modding and just getting right into the depth of this game. And what I noticed is when I had periods of my life where I played it, I would dream about it. When I was doing my dishes and stuff, I would be thinking about how to solve a problem in the game or how to get like the next piece of gear, like what my strategy for like going through a thing was. And my brain started to identify, it's like you get dopamine and you get a sense of accomplishment and you get a sense of reward from this thing. So we're gonna start prioritizing all of your thoughts towards solving these problems that you're now associating with getting a mental reward with. And this is the same, I've had the same thing with social media where it's like when I'm posting a lot and I'm very concerned with my insights, like my likes, shares, all my stats and stuff, I start to post. But then after I post for like two hours, my brain's like, go check and see how it's doing. Go start gathering data. It's like, I could leave it for two days and, and like not have to look at it once and then collect the data and make a, an informed decision. But my brain's like, get the fucking, get the fucking thing, get the thing. It's just <laughs> looping. It's like it's kind of pinwheels. And, uh, and so like, I've actually had to condition myself and, and, and put my environment set up in certain ways so that I am thinking less about that and and consciously i at first i have to consciously think about these other these other problems in my business in my personal life usually it's a business thing cuz i'm i'm running uh, multiple businesses for my clients and then also trying to uh, launch my own new product and there's like a million things that I, there's, there's so many fucking problems that i could be thinking about i'm thinking about like i wonder how that reel did bro <laughs> It's, yeah. it's like, you know, like you should, you should watch it 300 times just to see it <laughs> going back. You're watching your own thing. You're like, all right, what could I be just like, yeah, that, that's, that's good. I could do this better next time though. And it's, you just loop on this thing that absolutely is totally not important. It's very interesting. Your first point about the video game was perfect analogy, right? Like you think about what you're doing all the time, right? Like where your consciousness is at is kind of like a cyclical thing. It keeps going and going and going. If you're whatever you're into, you're going to be thinking about that. You're going to be solving that problem. So maybe trying to increase the level of problems that you have is a good start because you'll always have problems. Everyone has mm. problems in the world, but some people have better problems than others. And some people I would say are, are on a hierarchy. Your problems are on a hierarchy, right? Mm. And uh, I'm not saying I have the best problems, but I do think about ideas a lot, which I like, I guess, about myself, right? Like, um, I'm thinking about solving problems, uh, 
of humanity, I guess you can say, which is kind of a weird thing to say, right? But like, it's it's just true. I think there's like being influenced by actual philosophers who did that. That's what ancient philosophers actually did. They're like, here's the problem with, because there was problems in Plato's time. There's problem in Socrates' time. Uh, Young is like, I'm pretty smart, dude. I see the problems that are coming up for you. Here's the warning. Um, but if I'm just playing video games, I'm never going to get to that Carl Jung book. And I'm going to be no. thinking about the RPG. You know what I mean? I'm going to like, so, um, you know, having somebody who's a mentor who's like, yo, take this book, read it. Right. Or, you know, another mentor could be like, hey, uh, there's this Bitcoin thing that's coming up. Learn about it and you'll free up your time in 10 years. You know what I mean? I wish I had one of them. And actually, mm. I did see Bitcoin early. I'm like, ah, you know, but I mean, too little, too late on on the you know getting in at one cent type thing right but what i'm saying is mentors usually help quite a bit being an individual like shunning out society playing video games in your basement all day you're not going to get a mentor you would have to go seek one out so seeking out a mentor that you believe is great is a good first step steph uber boyo was great by the way he was one of the coaches who i'd say brought me the most clarity in my thought process at the time um i urge anyone to check out his channel uber while yeah i worked as a life coach for several years and a lot of the times i found that a lot of my coaching i never gave advice that was like one of my roles as a life coach is like i'm never gonna tell someone never gave advice uh but i asked questions that would help a person get to the thought that they were having in the back of their mind and they knew mm -hmm. it was the right answer but might not have allowed themselves to accept, embrace, or act upon because of some fear-based or conditioning-based motivation. And so I never, yeah, I never told anyone what to do. Having a personal realization yourself is a much more powerful, motivating, and action-inspiring thing than being told a piece of information because then it comes alive within yourself. Your brain just came up with this idea in relation and in the context of the whole big picture of your personal story in that moment. So I would never a, give advice. That's a great point. And I can't remember who, who I heard this from recently. I think it was like uh, Russell Brunson was the person who said it. He's like, you have realizations in your head and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I just thought of that. And how did I not think about this before? It's so simple, right? And then you go and tell someone else. They're like, yeah, cool, cool. Awesome story, right? But because they didn't come up with it themselves. They don't have that same type of excitement that you had when you thought about it. They need that type of excitement in order for them to actually have that like brain light up and say, oh, that is it, right? So just because you're excited about it doesn't mean someone else is going to be excited about it. Does it just because it makes so much sense to you and you're excited, it's not going to transfer automatically to somebody else. I think well, a lot also of people missed that and so did I for the longest time. And still do. I, I love that you brought up Russell Brunson because when he talks about that, he's like he teaches how to communicate in a marketing sense so well. Think about if you are telling a person a story uh, step by step leading to the realization and you can almost get them to a point where they're predicting the next part of the story. And if you can get them to that part where they're listening, they're like, yeah, okay, I see where this is going. I see where this is going. But you let them carry on a little bit more and make the conclusion before you make it. That's, that's a really powerful way to get an idea across or to sell something or to encourage, you know, to create enough buy-in and belief to, for a person to see the value of what it is that you're offering.
So yeah. a person has to come to their own conclusions. A person has to draw their own ideas. And you don't do that by just like giving them the thing up front. That's why telling your own personal story uh, in terms of how you made a transformation. If you're a weight loss coach, you talk about your like your aha moment and your breakthrough moment and your struggles and the things you tried and the frustration and the emotions. And then you start to piece together a little bit of a story of all the different factors that kind of came together for you to, 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 to see. And then you let them figure out what it is that you saw before you tell it. And then Sto when it, go ahead. Uh, sorry about that. I, I thought, uh, yeah, storytelling is absolutely key, right? Like to actually be able to tell a story that they can relate to, that another person can relate to and feel what you felt is best done through a story, right? And not just telling somebody that something happened and expect them to come to the same conclusion you did. But I think we're programmed to hear stories and that drives narratives, right? So the stories relate to the narratives. And if you can paint the story with a vivid picture, actually using the senses, that's even better, I think. That point about the senses is really, really profound. Because like, imagine even when you and I are talking about these abstractions, if we're able to relate it to some sort of viscerally felt experience, like when you're listening, when, I, when you're listening to us talk, about the body, it's a little bit easier. You can kind of imagine like the, the energy moving along the arch of the foot and you can feel, you know, you can approximate the feelings of tensegrity when we describe it viscerally. But when we're talking about deep ab abstractions like this, it's like, where do you feel authenticity in your own body? <laughs> where do you feel um, spontaneity? Uh, what is the visceral experience of these abstractions and how do you relate to them? Well, you can talk about a series of events that made you feel certain emotions and relate that back to like a moral of a story or a, you know, something, a teaching of the story. Um, it's really, really important. A lot of the stuff that we're talking about right now could make a lot more sense if we used practical examples from our own lives, right? Um, I kind of, that's, that's, you know, even before when I was talking about like the person who was, you know, waking up, driving to the, driving to work, repeating the same routine over and over. Now, all of a sudden they're in Indonesia and they have no idea what the fuck's going on. Like that's a story and that's something that you can visualize and you can actually see the, the, the example of the character reference there. Um, and yeah, I mean, like, I think it's, I think it's a very important thing to be able to do with it. Like if you just think in abstractions and you just speak in abstractions, there's no relatability. There's no way to connect with someone. There's no way to really influence a person's mind. Yeah, certain ideas can be strong and they can be propagated easily, but usually they're associated with some sort of emotion or attachment. Uh, absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. And uh, it's funny because we're talking about how to do it and didn't do it ourselves. I know. So I, I told some stories, but like um, I'm just coming to these realizations in the moment, right? Same. So. Uh, I, I'm kind of flashing back to a lot of things I learned through this conversation, actually, like uh, Russell Brunson and listening mm. to him. There was a time in my life where I did a lot of introspection. Uh, you know, RSD Tyler, the uh, guy who you're talking about, was uh, apparently the, he, he would say he was a geek back in the day, didn't know anything, got rejected by women. Autistic. And, and like learned. Yeah. Like, autistic incapable, and, and like learned. incapable of reading social cues. Yeah. And, and learned through intellectualism, how to, uh, for lack of a better word, socialized with, with the opposite sex. Okay? But, and, but, yeah. but he took so much action. He was spending 
every night out practicing his theory and developing his theory through reference experience of actually doing these things. It wasn't just pure logic and pure abstraction, mm -hmm. but he would break, he would, he had a perfect yin yang balance. He would break down into as much abstraction, his experiences in the moments or his, you know, what was happening within his social interactions. And then he would, you know, make a new hypothesis and then he'd go test it and he would just continue these iterations over and over and over. And that's how he developed his social theory. Well, he took his downfall and made it his advantage. His mm. downfall was he would just be in his head thinking, breaking it down logically. Logical thinking doesn't really work well with socializing and having a, how do I say, like an emotional intelligence. Right. Emotional intelligence and IQ, not the same thing whatsoever. Right. So, so, so why is that? Yeah. Is one more authentic than the other? Um, it, it, it could be, I think people are naturally a certain way and I think people are programmed a certain way. Right. So I think it's, it's a bit of nature nurture, but he happened to be for one or another reason on the spectrum of logic and couldn't understand why people don't logically want to hang out with me or, how come I'm always last in the pecking order and, and all that, right? So he just repetitively, he's like, okay, I'm a relentless type of person. I'm going to use that to my advantage and just calibrate, calibrate, calibrate and figure this out through years of repetition where another person who's actually like, quote unquote, cool can just walk outside and be like, hey, what's up, right? And like, just be 10 years advanced to where Tyler was, but now Tyler's caught up, right? And has the advantage of knowing how he did it. It's like a basketball player who's really good. And it's like, I don't know how I did it. It's just like, I'm yeah. just good at basketball versus a guy who's like, who schooled himself. Who's like, he knows every step and is now as good as that person. Who's naturally good. I think the advantage goes to the person who learned it in that. I shouldn't com directly compare, but I'm saying that you can break down how you did it. And you'll, you learned a lot in the process. Well, what's interesting about like the person who is naturally that good, either socially, athletically, whatever, and the person who broke it down and was like a logical technician and went so deep until they also expressed the characteristics of a natural is that the amount, like, first of all, you can actually teach it to others when you've broken mm -hmm. it down yourself. When you had to learn it, like a, a person who's not, this is the whole thing we talked about athletic coaches in the past who you know, just because they're athletes, they promote themselves as really good personal trainers. Like, well, look how athletic I am. So dude, you're naturally athletic. That doesn't have anything to do with how good your theories of training or blah, blah, blah. It's no relevance, right? Um, by the same token, it's like you could have someone who's like very, very suave and he would not be able to teach you how to talk to other people or how to be social because he doesn't understand the, the depth and the theory behind why he gets the results that he gets. I'm going to tell a funny story. Please. I was a personal Tell trainer right when I was like 22 and I was like, I was pretty jacked. And I just like was one of those guys who's like, you know what? I'm just going to pump these weights <laughs> until like I can't walk anymore. Right. And, uh, there was all these Paul check practitioners who worked in the same gym as me and they, they knew a lot of stuff, right? Like they were advanced looking at it now. I was like, Whoa, those guys are pretty advanced. Right. Like back, you know, this is like 15 years ago. Right. Or, or so. And uh, I was walking around just like I was the shit because I, I just lift a lot of weights. Right. And I had clients who were just like, I want to work out with that guy. Cause he's just like, <laughs> he's motivating. And I, I, you know, box with them and I, I make them pump weights and it beat out the intellectual guys 
and I knew way less than these guys. I was looking back, I was a way worse trainer, but I was just better in terms of like EQ, like emotion or uh, yeah, emotional intelligence. Yeah. They're like, I, I don't want to be bored. Right. And it <laughs> happened to work with their energy. Right. So, I mean, that that's a lesson in itself right there that I forgot about. Right. So interesting. Well, yeah. So again, when you, talk, <laughs> when we're talking about people being motivated by certain things in a marketing capacity um, or in terms of like what narratives to be that, that, that people are encouraged to anchor onto um, a lot of the times people aren't motivated necessarily to improve themselves or to find truth or to like think for themselves. They're motivated to experience good emotions for the most part and good emotions coming from whatever they're, being told are going to provide good emotions. Half of marketing is telling what people need to feel good or what need they, what they need to feel whole or to solve a problem and feel relief from some sort of pain. A lot of mm -hmm. it is oriented around moving towards positive emotions and moving away from negative emotions. Very, very easily to manipulate people. Once you understand that very easy to market to people ethically when you understand that, because maybe you are selling like, here's the whole thing is like, sometimes people really need things like, they could they could really benefit from some uh, you know element of personal development or solving a particular problem that they're refusing to solve, um, but they're too hypnotized by all the other bullshit to be able to see that they would really benefit from this thing. So in in a sense, like your marketing and your emotional manipulation, quote unquote, is a sense of service because these people wouldn't help themselves otherwise. Now that's that's like a whole other slippery slope of ethical implications yeah. in terms of like mind control that I don't really want to get into now. I'd love to another time, yeah. but just in terms of like, it's it's very very kind of interesting to see, you know, like. <laughs> even the idea of like what motivates a person, what are you authentically motivated by? Like where, like, you know, in terms of like the things that you're motivated by when we're talking about the animalistic drives of like temperature regulate, like homeostasis, essentially homeostasis and reproduction. Those are natural motivations. Those are authentic motivations to your body and to you. Uh, there are metacognitive motivations in terms of like, if you, people, people want to preserve their sense of self. People want to preserve how they, their image of themselves and their, that's the whole idea of ego product protection and why people are deceptive with themselves. Um, you know, are you motivated by protecting your ego and protecting your sense of self and having a consistent, stable idea of who the fuck you are? Um, you know, what are, what are other things that motivate people? Uh, I think most people are motivated by, uh, status, status in terms of like, uh, I'm going to say, um, resources, uh, being attractive and having a higher order, higher in the pecking order. Right. So mm. I think that's, that's like a subconscious motivation. I don't think people tell themselves that. Okay. In some general, people some people do, some people are real with it. And, uh, in terms of like fitness, what do most people want? I I've been around the block here. Most people want to look good. Okay. Yeah. They're like. I don't, okay, tell me more about the body, but how do I get the six pack? How do I get the butt, right? Mm. So like, Red Contreras is going to get a lot of people watch him because he tells people how to get a bigger butt. And he can also put the science in there of the big butt. So, I mean, it works out that that's going to be what most people want. That's just the reality of it. Like, I don't think we can hide this. Most people who are young want to jump men want to jump higher, run faster, be more athletic, be able to express their vigor and show the world how vigorous they are. 
You know what I mean? And it's and it's show others, right? Yeah. At some point, I think it's smart to get past that. I, I have a personal story. Somebody messaged me and they know that like I, I used to CrossFit. I was like physically jacked, right? Like I was like 40 pounds heavier than I am right now. And they're, they're like, when you lost all the weight, because I want to do the same thing, how did you do it? Like, how did you stop yourself from caring? Because everybody would come up to me and be like, you lost so much weight. Are you, you're skinny, blah, blah, blah. Right. Which is funny because like people don't think that happens to men. It does. Right. And that is the a proof of kind of like the motivation to still be jacked. Right. Um, so I was thinking about it. And I'm like, what is the answer? I actually didn't, I didn't care that much. You know what I mean? When somebody came up to me and said it, I'm like, you're weird. In my head, I'm like, you're the weird one. That's how I framed mm. it in my head at the time, right? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just not working out as much. I'm boxing. Cool, right? Like, why are you asking me this? Why do you care about my <laughs> uh, my uh, sexiness, right? My yeah. avatar. You care about more of my, my avatar view than I do. It's weird, right? Mm. But and, and I messaged him back. I'm like, I actually didn't care. Do you care? He's like, yeah, I care. I'm like, well, then you have a different problem because you have to figure out why you care. Mm. And and that's that, right? Like, why do you care so much? And he's like, yeah, you're, you're right. I do have to figure that out. So was there a point in your life that you did care? Oh yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. And what's, what's your answer for why you cared? Cause I'm thinking about mine. To, I'm stalling right be, now. I'm like, Back when I was like athletic, I was like the first one, really not the first one, but like I discovered the gym early, right? Like I'm talking grade eight, grade nine. I was like pumping iron. Like I was in the YMCA by myself. I remember mm. this one guy, this, this guy that was in there. He was like older. I think he was a doctor. He was probably in his late thirties. He, he comes up to me one day. He's like, why are you in here so much? You should be out with your friends. And I'm just like looking at my biceps in the mirror. I'm like, look at that vein. It's coming out. Right? Like. I'm, I'm, I have the abs. I'm in grade nine. People are like, Whoa, uh, I always wanted my shirt off. Not because I wanted sun. It's because I wanted to show my abs. Right. So I cared a lot because I was getting validation, right? Mm -hmm. I was getting validation from the tribe. And that's really what I cared about at the time. Now, if you asked me, I'd be like, I don't know. But at the time that was definitely why I was doing it made me a worse athlete for sure, <laughs> because I was not doing anything athletic and just pumping iron and pumping my blood full, or body to get bigger and to be more aesthetics. I was doing aesthetics, mm -hmm. right? I, when I was trying to be an athlete, but I cared more about my personal appearance than I did the actual athletics. But I was also under the impression in my young and personable mind that the aesthetics would translate into athletics, right? So I couldn't blame myself completely. I was young and dumb, right? But um, that was, that was the case. I did care at the time. It's interesting. I, I was thinking about a, an author or a biologist, I guess, David Buss, who was introduced to me by Ty Lopez recommended his uh, textbook on evolutionary psychology, but he, he has this idea that everything's mating and that most of our efforts towards decorating our bodies and our personalities are for mating efforts. And, you know, obviously the social hierarchy is something to do with that. But like, in terms of like, even the status thing, it's like, well, status is good for what? Attracting a mate. <laughs> There's this, uh, you know, this inherent desire to to earn mating rights as a human being. It, like, obviously there's an inborn 
like drive for us to propagate our species. There's feel good hormones that, you know, pump through our bodies when we're connecting with people and having sex and, you know, being intimate with people in general. Um, you know, there's a huge natural motivator. And, uh, you know, David Buss from an evolutionary psychology perspective thinks that everything kind of orients around this sort of apex of, uh, trying to find a mate. Everything is mating. I think when you're younger, that is accurate to a high degree, right? Like I, I would say so. Yeah. hundred percent. Like you're trying to figure things out as a, like a young person. That is definitely the case. I think you can grow out of that for sure. Yes. I think that's one of the harder things to do, to actually do is to grow out of it. Um, and that takes a lot of, you know, individualism in, in one sort of way you have to actually work on yourself, uh, understand why you think what you think and perhaps uh go get above that because everybody's gonna wrinkle up doesn't matter how much botox you do doesn't matter how sexy you are you're gonna not be that good looking when you're 60 <laughs> 65 70 like it's gonna it's, go away like it, it just is it's interesting too like i was just thinking about how have you ever seen someone get into a relationship and they let themselves go like yeah, all of a sudden all, all personal time. growth stops their motivation drops. They don't work as hard. They're not out there. Maybe they're even less social in general, but they have this partner. And now all of a sudden, like it's just, they let themselves go. Right. And I like that, that concept of they let themselves, their idea of themselves, their personality archetype, that maybe they had built this personality again, with the intention of finding a mate and the intention of being good enough. Once they get get the thing they were going after that they thought, you know, that's like, well, I'm going to build myself up to be worthy of love. They get the secure form of love in the form of a committed relationship. And now all of a sudden they don't have to keep that act up. They don't have to keep that personality up. That's inauthentic, right? Like that's, that's inauthenticity to me where it's like, oh, are you just propping up this personality so that you can get something or you can be validated or you can be loved. And as soon as you get it, you don't have to maintain this act anymore. Cause that's a pretty flimsy house of cards in terms of a personality. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the majority. Everybody's done that at some point, I think, or, or most people have done something like that uh, at least once in their, in their life. Right. So that is definitely a thing. Um, yeah. It's, it's very interesting. Um, I think when you're, when you're single, you're definitely more vigorous towards a lot of things. Right. And then oh, yeah. relationship, you're definitely more, it, it's comfort, right? It's it, what it is. It's like, you're settled. That's why they call it settling down. Like conversely, like statistically, some of the most successful men, I don't know if the statistics are the same for women, but some of the most successful men are married women with children, like a significant portion of them. And I think there is something to be said in terms of like, uh, I have seen people step up due to familial responsibilities where like there's a version of themselves that rather than getting complacent, all of a sudden this sense of responsibility, this, or maybe they start dating someone that they actually subconsciously feels a little bit out of their league and they have to like build themselves up to, to keep the relationship. It's like they're, they don't want to be that entrepreneur that makes their first hundred thousand dollars and then chills out and stops working and doesn't grow their business from there. Right. They want, they want to make sure that they're still, you know, improving their own value and improving their own quality so that, that this partner or this person that they actually value, this person that they're not taking for granted, will uh, will have justification to stay. Um, in the case of kids, it's like, well, fuck, I'm not gonna let my kids starve. So they have to develop the character traits and focus to be able to 
provide for their family. So sometimes it's a complacent, again, it's like, there's always two sides to it. There's a complacency that can, can kind of happen where a person just like stops trying. Cause they, they're like, well, here it is. You already said you love me. So here you go. Keep loving me. Or it's like, okay, well, I love this person. I'm going to maximize who the fuck I am and what I'm accomplishing. And I'm going to provide and I'm going to care for, and I'm going to make, you know, become the person that I need to be in order to make that happen. Well, those are good points, and I should have clarified that I meant when you're younger. Mm. And uh, is it causation or correlation, right? Because when you're older, when you're in your 30s, 40s, you're more likely to be married and already have that nest egg built up. And also, you use the word success, which obviously uh, means getting money, resources, and uh, you know that sort of thing is the word success for most people, right? Mm. So that's just an interesting aside because – when I call that out, people are like, no, no, that's not, that's not what it is. But like, everybody uses it like that. Come on. Right. Like, um, so yeah, when you're older, obviously having married kids, you're more able to create the nest egg, right? Because you're settled down and not going out and partying and stuff like that. But there is that element of if you're single, you're going out and doing not necessarily things that'll make you successful with money and resources, mm. but I would say more vigorous towards You'll travel, you'll uh, work harder, you'll uh, work out more, you'll be more adventurous. There's that Definitely. end of it too, right? Yeah. Definitely true in my recent experience. Um, I have been traveling more. I have been working harder. I haven't you know, necessarily been like killing myself in the gym comparatively because I feel like that's just been like a, like a pretty steady, consistent thing in my life. I don't work out harder when I'm single versus in a relationship necessarily, which is good. Um, mm -hmm. Because again, that's an integral fixed part of like who I am, but I actually find in general, like even recently I was on dating apps for a little bit because I was seeing what it was like and trying to connect with people. I got to a point where I was like, this is a lot of energy and I'm not really invested in a lot of these very unintentional interactions and it feels very superficial. And it's like, sure, I could put a lot of work and invest a lot of effort into finding someone and developing an authentic connection. But right now it's like, I want to build a business. I want to give myself opportunities to, to travel the world. And, and like, I want to be ready to have a little bit of a nest egg myself too. If I do meet someone who I want to like start a family with and I want to, you know, invite them in to build something bigger with me in, in terms of sharing a life together. Like I want to be able to have something to offer as well. And, mm -hmm. uh, at this point I'm just like, why am I, why am I focusing on this? <laughs> this doesn't make any sense to me. Like this, this is like, this is not fruitful in any sense of the word. But again, like you think in terms of like, what does success mean for men? It's like, Sleeping with women is part of that in terms of social perception and, and unconscious things where it's like, oh, you know, I haven't hung out or I haven't gone on many dates lately. I wouldn't, you know, like I'm a young man. What am I doing? Um, and then just realizing I don't care. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very, very content to focus on my goals and focus on building things and podcasting and, and you know, basically do, doing the things that are important to me and building a life that I'd be excited to invite someone into. Uh, those are very interesting points. Um, what was I going to say? Okay, Tesla. Tesla was like, you got to be alone to have the best inventions, best ideas. Okay. I don't know if that's true or not because he was a loner. He, he said that probably, right? Um, same thing with Einstein. Einstein actually had a contract with his wife saying like, don't bother me from this time, this time, this time. You have to do these things. He literally made her sign a contract. Okay. They were working on their craft to the point where it was probably unhealthy and obsessive. Now, fast forward to this age, 
the reality is that uh, most people want a partner with a nest egg of some sort because why wouldn't you? You There's another person with a nest egg. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to pair bond anymore. Like that's not a thing. It's not a necessary – I shouldn't say you don't have to pair bond. You don't have to pair bond at a young age anymore. You have mm. way more choice and way more ability to reach outside of your zone. If you're a person in uh, Turkmenistan and you're very, very attractive, somebody from Saudi Arabia can be like, hey, come on my yacht. You know what I mean? Like that <laughs> is a thing that happens because the world is very interconnected, right? So um, it's not like it was before. You don't have to marry the person in your village, right? It's at a 20 or 18 years old. And that wasn't even that long ago that that, that was happening. So mm. – it's a different world. There's realities. And that's one of the realities is, yeah, if you want a higher chances for a partnership, you have to build a nest egg. That's just the way it is, right? Now, not to say that you can't not do it. Like, it, there's a there's definitely possibilities of pair bonding without one, but chances are lower. And you got to bring value somewhere else. I think bringing mm. value is key, right? Like, you have to bring value somewhere. Where do you think... Where do you think a man's value comes from in a relationship? Where do you think a woman's value comes from in a relationship? Depends on the relationship, but mostly men, resources. Um, and, you know, resources, intelligence, whatever. I think for the most part, mainstream, it's resources. That's what's promoted out mm. there. Who are the most attractive men always? The world's sexiest man is a rich movie star or athlete. This is a person with a ton of resources who's very famous. So you have to have social credit, right? Those are the most attractive men in the mainstream eyes, according to People Magazine or whatever, right? Like whatever the mainstream top is, that's what is uh, the tops, right? Even uh, take a look at like Andrew Tate, right? Um, he promotes whatever you think of him. He promotes... You got to be rich. You got to have the resources. Mm. You got to have the Bugatti. You want to compete with me? I got a Bugatti. I'm a, I'm a kickboxer. I'm six foot, whatever he is, six foot three. And I'm 240 pounds. Look at my muscles. Uh, all that stuff, right? And he does have a lot of options. Okay. So like, did you see him at the, there was a fight he was at and one, one of the most famous supermodels came up to him and he's just like, no, get away from me because he's got the charge that he's fighting and he's just like, I don't know who sent you, but there's literally a video, look it up on YouTube of one of the top supermodels in the world coming up to him and trying to get his attention. Okay. So there's a reality behind things that people don't want to know. And that's one of them. That's, that's a, one of the things that a higher status he's known. That's another thing too. You can be known on screen mm. and people think they know you like, how yeah. weird is that? Right? Like, you watch a celebrity your whole life on a screen and you think you know them. This happens to everybody because right, you have I'm... this ability in your brain to like think that you know who's on the screen. Well, in terms of personal branding, especially on social media, that is the illusion that you want to maintain. I mean, there's a lot that goes into my Instagram account that makes people feel connected to me. They might not know the personal intimate details going on in the background of my life. 
but they can sure feel like they do. They feel like they're part of the whole story. They feel like they're part of the adventure. They feel like, you know, we're, we're best buddies catching up and there's some sort of connection, you know, like there's conversations that happen. The reality is I've, I actually do make great friends with that as the base uh, for, for how we connect. They feel like they understand me to a certain degree. I'm developing rapport without direct interaction. That rapport translates to a conversation. It pivots off. We maybe get deeper. Maybe they're even surprised by the depth that I have beyond what their original perception of me based on my, my image, my projected social media images. And we find, you know, deeper basis for connection. Um, but the reality is, is like, we all create an illusion of, who we are based on a projected image. And the more media that you apply, the more your image is projected as this like idea, right? Now it's interesting. Go yeah, ahead. Sorry. Go, no, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, what's interesting is the more you get wrapped up in curating this image and the more that you uh, tie of yourself into this image, the more pressure you feel to be congruent with a limited parameter mm. of how you're projecting yourself. And that's where, I think some authentic expression can go to die where it's like, okay, well, would, would Instagram Anthony do this? Like, would I post this on Instagram? If not, then maybe I shouldn't do it. It's like, if that's how you're thinking, it's like, wait, I'm acting in, in adherence to like this limited narrow thing that's going to protect, maximize the projection and protection of my image on, on a, like a media character. That's not authentic, right? That's, that's like, that's where you're no longer like sovereign and you're no longer in control. Your free will is being subverted by an idea of yourself. It, all those are very interesting points, what you just said. And they're all true, right? Like you do take a look at somebody on Instagram, YouTube, whatever TV, and you always draw a judgment towards what you think, who you think they are, or what you think they're doing or how they're presenting themselves. And there's a reason public relations exists. Every company needs public relations because that's the whole point. Billionaires, people form opinions of billionaires, but they literally have the best public relations forming those opinions for you. Literally paying millions of dollars to get an image crafted for you to see on your screen and you're like, I know Elon Musk. I know he's such a good guy. Or uh, Bill Gates, whatever you think of him. I know Bill Gates. No, you don't. You don't know Elon Musk either. You don't know any of these guys. No. Uh, they're projecting something on screen and they have the ability to project quite uh, awesome detail about themselves through paid psychologists who understand how to manipulate your perceptions right not to say that they all do that right but a lot of them do and public relations is a massive industry for corporations uh celebrities sports stars governments and anybody right and well, the, everyone's their own public relations officer when you come when it comes down to it right yeah so like yeah. elon musk saying uh zuck is a cuck I propose a literal dick measuring contest. He tweeted that recently. And I just like, dude, you're like, this is what I want to see. I want to see people just acting completely and totally unhinged, absent of, uh, you know, public relations concerns. Maybe it was a, a PR stunt, but like, um, cause that happens too, is like yeah. acting so out of congruence that people are so shocked that it gives them attention and it like loops it back. And then you can, you know, you'll never like know. A or you, you have no idea, right? You have yeah. no sweet clue. I think the, the real thing is to like allow room for your authentic self to exist without filtering through your inner public relations manager. <laughs> you know very, what I mean? Very, very difficult to do. 
very I think we're kind of doing do. it here right like this is um i'm obviously not i'm going like 80 percent. you know what i mean yeah. uh, like i can't go 100 percent. uh i have to live but you're getting 80 percent, <laughs> right you're getting 80 percent, and uh i i mean i enjoy this type of thing right because it's long form you can't get out like the more instagram i do hit hit up the dopamine in under 40 seconds with content about the body it's like um okay sure right and then like, like someone will message you and be like you forgot this it's like yeah i know <laughs> it's a 40 second clip i'm not going to give you every detail about the body in 40 seconds right like you forgot this yeah it's hilarious <laughs> i just gave you a dopamine hit hit me up with a like yeah come on <laughs> we'll yeah. trade dopamine for dopamine yeah we'll trade dopamine for like oh my gosh um yeah yeah the, like uh, likewise i think i've been trying to lean into sharing more personal details and deliberately um uncurating my you know i still curate content but i'm trying to uncurate some of my conversations even talking about how like I'm basically a trained monkey when it comes to social media and I sit here and loop and like watch back my own shit. And I'm like, I'm very unproductive and I have a really unproductive relationship with social media. Being candid about that is like, that's authentic. <laughs> you know, like I'm not trying to protect myself and maintain this image of this like perfectly disciplined entrepreneur who knows everything about business, which would be great for my brand, but it wouldn't be real. I actually prefer to brand myself. Like, here's the other thing. When I, encourage people to brand themselves. And when I think about my own branding, it's like, what is the actual authentic struggle that I push through to make it happen anyway? I mm. am ADHD as fuck. I am very unfocused. I am highly distractible and I am hedonistic, right? I know all these things about myself. Uh, I know all my shortcomings, but if I share how I choose to handle them and how I choose to navigate around them with ADHD, it's a lot of habit systems. Uh, it's a lot of app blockers. It's a lot of different things. And, but these are problems that I have that other people definitely have as well. So if I'm mm -hmm. pretending to be like, I'm an expert and you should do this. Instead, it's like, look, I struggle with this so fucking much and I'm battling this and I am fighting this out. And I like, I still want to accomplish this, but I know that if I don't handle this bullshit about myself, it'll never happen. So here's how I'm going against my natural tendencies that sabotage my efforts to be, to, to express my higher self. And here's how you can do the same thing. If you're, you know, experiencing the same problem that That's for very me, cool. Well, well, and, and what that does is it stops you from draining all your energy, trying to maintain this perfect image of yourself. Mm -hmm. you, like it takes image persona means mask, right? It's the, I think the ancient Greek word for mask persona. Um, if you're trying to maintain a persona, you're holding up this mask and the more details that you have about this false image of yourself, the heavier that mask gets, the more energy it takes to carry it around and always show people this mask in front of you first. When you just let yourself have all your faults, but share how you're planning on managing them and share your struggles and share your, you know, how you're earning and learning your way through character development, then, you know, you get to be imperfect and it doesn't cost you a thing in terms of energy. I, I like that idea a lot, what you just said about like, it costs you energy to not be authentic in terms of like, uh, I know the whole uh, idea of this podcast episode is what is authentic and what are you, but like, there is a point where you get, you know, into your thirties and I'm almost 40 now, it's like, you start to know your tendencies and what costs you energy and what doesn't. So try to work with what doesn't cost you energy and uh, what definitely costs you energy is not being 
authentic to what you know costs you energy, right? <laughs> so uh, that is a very good point of what you said earlier. Well, it's it's sort of like um, I made a tweet the other day where the the more often you have to dumb down what you actually think just so that people can connect with you, the more exhausting it is. Like very intelligent people have to like use different vocabulary with, with people who aren't as educated as them. They, 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 they literally have to change the way they think in order to communicate and connect with other people. Sometimes the more educated you are, the more intelligent you are, the, the broader your scope of understanding, the more you kind of have to modify or dumb down how you express yourself. And that's exhausting. And that's when people can think that they're introverted, but if they were going to talk to someone who could meet them at that level of depth, that level of intellect, that level of shared vocabulary and shared frameworks and shared you know depth of a particular topic, they could get invigorated by that conversation because they have – like I'm never exhausted after you and I finish a podcast. I do it in the middle of a work day and usually it's like you know it's uh, – we started at uh, what, like three-ish today and uh, – well, yeah, 3 p.m. Mountain Standard. And I'm right in the middle of a work day. I was feeling a little tired. I was feeling a little unfocused. I'm so jacked up right now from, from getting into the flow and talking to you and being like, oh, these are cool ideas. Getting those little dopamine hits of like new uh, associations forming in my neural networks. Like it's very energizing and there's no, and I'm also not putting on a show, right? Like when you and I talk, uh, like, yeah, I do the little uh, intro before earlier episodes, I was watching back some earlier episodes and I caught, it's like, Oh, like I'm performing the role of a podcaster. Like I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to like have that personality. I'm trying to be right now. I'm just you and I, just you and I shooting the shit, talking about things we find interesting. There's no more performative aspects. So there's no energy being drained into trying to curate the expression necessarily. I'm the natural. We don't script these at all anymore. Like we're literally freestyling literally everything. When we got on, we were like, hey, what are we talking about today? You know, so um, you're getting pretty authentic uh, content here from Anthony and I. I, But I do have to go. Um, It's harvest time here. I'm in Ontario at my parents' place and we're harvesting a garden, garlic, onions, watching the plants grow, taking them out of the ground. It's amazing. (laughs) Love it. Beautiful, it's weird man. what you actually are entertained by as you get older, you know, like <laughs> I'm like this old man now. He's like, Hey, I love pulling out garlic from the ground. It's so <laughs> soothing. <laughs> you know, it's, it's weird. Or you're very present. You're very grounded and it's nice being outside. And it is really, really an amazing thing when you understand even the complexity of the food system to like see food that, you know, you grew yourself, like pulling that out and be like, Holy shit. Like cool. Um, oh, so, yeah. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the Art of Move podcast. You can find us on Instagram. I am at Anthony.Manuel, M-A-N-U-E-L-E. Will is at The Art of Move. Hit us up. Let us know what you thought of this episode in the comments. Uh, Answer our polls on Spotify. Let us just know what your thoughts and if we missed any ideas and we'll bounce off of them for another episode. Thank you for listening, guys, and we'll catch you on the next episode of The Art of Move. Have a good one, guys.